Welcome to the Gren Zone. Dissecting dermatology differently. Here is your host, Dr. Logan Kolb. Welcome back, everybody. So we have another great episode idea that was suggested by many of you in our recent listener survey. Pearls for the use of biologics. These medications can make a life-changing difference for the patients who need them, but as prescribers, we must do it safely and efficiently. So how do you screen patients to start a biologic? What are the contraindications? Once you decide to start a biologic, how do you choose from all of the options that are out there? And once you decide on the option you want, what does the process look like for getting that biologic covered by insurance and in the patient's hands? Since most of the biologics we'll discuss today are for the treatment of psoriasis, I highly suggest you check out episodes 4 and 5 to get some background on the clinical presentation of psoriasis, how to do a thorough H&P of a psoriasis patient, and then background on all the different classes of biologics that we'll discuss today. I'm happy to announce that we'll be joined by a very special guest today to discuss these biologics, my former program director, Dr. Karthik Krishnamurthy, who we all know and love as Dr. K. Dr. Krishnamurthy graduated from the University of Missouri with dual degrees in biochemistry and medicinal chemistry and received his medical degree from Nova Southeastern University. After his internship at Cook County Hospital in Chicago, Dr. K completed his dermatology residency at St. Barnabas Hospital in New York, where he served as the chief resident. He then joined the academic faculty as associate professor at Albert Einstein College of Medicine and trained many batches of residents there before ending up in Jacksonville, where he started the Orange Park Medical Center Dermatology Residency and helped me to start this podcast for you all. Dr. K thrives in many areas of dermatology, but I personally think that he has a special magic when it comes to teaching students and residents complex dermatology. So we are lucky to have him here today to discuss biologics. But first, I'll mention our disclaimer, that this episode is meant for educational and informational purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment, nor does it represent the views of Orange Park Medical Center, Olmstead Medical Center, or their affiliates. So, Dr. K, how are you doing? I'm doing great, and thank you for such, you know, all the kind words. You know, I think that the biggest thing that a teacher can get from his students is like having them appreciate the things that he's taught them, and then going out and using them for his own patients. So, it's really great to see that you're all the great things that you're doing here at the podcast. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it, and I also appreciate all the help you've done um, for the from the get go, pretty much for the podcast too. So, no, you're right. So why don't we get started? We have a lot to go through today, um, but starting out before we even get into the nitty gritty of biologics, I just want to hit the basics. So what exactly is a biologic? Basically, it's a medication or a product that is produced by living organisms, whether it's microbes, animals, or humans. And these biologics can come in different forms like blood products or vaccines. But today, when it comes to the biologics for psoriasis, it's we're discussing antibodies essentially coming from these sources. So uh, I had mentioned that people should listen back to the psoriasis episodes for some of the basics on the different types. But do you mind giving us just the quick cliff notes for all the biologics that are out there for psoriasis? Well, I think the first thing I want to say is that I do have a couple of disclosures to make. I mean, this is not for CME or anything, but I just think it's best to state them and put them out there. I don't think anything we're going to talk about today with my industry relationships is going to be a conflict or affect 
the discussion in any way. But honestly, you know, some of my experiences have really helped me learn how to navigate like a lot of the coverage issues across all the multiple platforms. And so like, I'm thrilled to be able to share some of those experiences, not just in prescribing the medications, but like how to actually get the medication for your patient um, and how to make that easier for everyone so that you want to be able to do it and you just don't see it as a burden. So mm-hmm. I'm on the Speakers Bureau for AbV, Regeneron, Sanofi, Genzyme, Jansen, and Eli Lilly. But like I said, I don't think that it's going to bias my talk in any way. And I think, in fact, it might help me help you navigate some of these things. Yeah, no, perfect. I think so. A lot of experience can help with this quite a bit. So um, so which biologics are out? Did you mind just kind of going through briefly the classes and uh, what options we have available to us before we talk about how we choose them? Yeah, I think that's a, I think that's a, a great place to sort of lay a foundation. I know, you, you know, you've done some psoriasis episodes as well that are going to sort of delve a lot deeper into sort of the science of some of those. So I think it'd be a nice supplement for people to go back and sort of listen to that and then put this together, you know, sort of the science and the bedside. But, you know, we basically have these large classes of medications. And I want to make a disclaimer that just because a medication sort of sits in the same class or has the same target, you can't assume that they're going to have the same efficacy, but you can pretty much pretty much assume they're going to have the same thing and they're going to have very similar indications just even outside of psoriasis. And so we have our sort of, I'm not going to talk about the extinct, extinct classes or the ones that have gone by the wayside, they're no longer available or have been discontinued. But I really do think that, you know, one of the original strongest classes of biologics that really, really got doctors, uh, you know, in dermatology, rheumatology, gastroenterology excited um, to treat patients with are the TNF-alpha inhibitor class. And I think the, there are a lot of them out there, but the, the ones that have sort of survived are etanercept, adalimumab, infliximab. Um, and sertilizumab, which is Simsia. And so, you know, when you talk about the science of it all, those are sort of the original TNF sort of being the, you know, the symphony conductor of the inflammatory response that we see in a lot of these TH1 mediated diseases like, you know, psoriasis and a lot of the rheumatologic diseases. And then as time went on, we sort of found, well, we don't need to, you know, cut out the whole symphony necessarily. Like maybe it's just certain instruments that are just more um, responsible for the inflammation that we see in psoriasis. And so that's when they started looking at interleukin-23, and that's when ustekinumab came out, and it, it blocks both IL-12 and IL-23, and it seemed to be maybe a little bit more specific for psoriasis, and, and, and maybe had a smaller, uh, smaller safety concerns, a lower side effect profile. Mm-hmm. And then they started to sort of realize, well, hey, you know, maybe IL-23 is the key, and we really don't need to be blocking you know, the rest of our immune system. Let's, let, let's cut out, you know, let's add some more instruments back into the symphony and just really cut out maybe like the flute. And that's when the whole IL-23, IL-17 um, pathway sort of became elucidated, and then drugs started to come out that were blocking just uniquely IL-17 or IL-23. So it sort of goes like, you know, TNF, just to break it down, makes your body create more interleukin 23, which downstream makes affect your cells, whether it's your skin or the joints, then have an environment of IL-17. So it sort of goes TNF 23, then 17. Well, after the TNFs came out, the next drug class to really make it to the market were the IL-17. So it's sort of called, called like this Goldilocks story, where it's like the porridge is too hot, then the porridge is too cold. And so like, you know, IL-17s are great. And we'll talk about you know, their safety profile and their efficacy. But, you know, some of them do carry a black box warning for inflammatory bowel disease. Some of the blockade of IL-17 has been associated with, with depression. And so they sort of walked it back and said, okay, well, let's just look at IL-23 by itself. And so that's sort of where the newest class 
of drugs lie in, in the 23 market. So, you know, you're still not blocking TNF. You're only blocking 17 in the skin, in the joints, really, because when you block 23, but you're not blocking all the IL-17 in the body because we understand that IL-17 does different things than just skin and joints. And so that's sort of the landscape. And that's sort of how I like to think about um, when I'm putting a patient on drug, like how much blockade am I trying to do? You know, sometimes too little mm -hmm. blockade is not good. Sometimes too much is not good. It really just depends on the patient. Yeah. And I like that analogy with the symphony too. I think that's really helpful. Or sometimes I make the comparison to the different branches of the military too, just when I'm explaining these biologics to patients. So let's pretend you do have a psoriasis patient in front of you. What are those things that make you think, Ooh, I think this patient is probably going to need a biologic today. So I think patient selection is really the key to this. And so that's an excellent question. And I think there's just so many factors that affect a patient's candidacy for biologic therapy. And they've sort of been automatic for me. And so, you know, when you asked me to, to join, you know, this session of the podcast, I really did have to go back and distill like, okay, when going back with all my experience, like how am I really, really like heuristically breaking this down in my mind when I make a decision in 30 seconds as to maybe what's best for the patient to sort of present it to them. So I think, I think patient selection is the key. And there's, there's two arms to that. There's two broad arms to that. One is the like Mr. Spock logical way where you only just look at objective criteria and it's like, you know, not the individual, but just how they present, like maybe their phenotype. But I do think the whole second arm of that is that emotional, instinctual, you know, bedside subjective factors that influence a decision to pursue systemic therapy. And so if we sort of break down those two arms of what's important in both of those things, then you can sort of form a gestalt in your mind as to whether this patient qualifies for a biologic and then really choose the one that's best for them or the, choose the top three that are best for them. They're not always going to just be one that's best for them. You're almost always going to have choices. So like the first objective criteria um, which I think you have to start with the objective before you even get to the subjective because the subjective won't matter um, if they don't meet the criteria that their insurance company wants them to meet. So just sort of knowing um, what those objective criteria are, and I'll talk about those in a second. And the second is sort of like a safety responsibility perspective. You know, like, look, these, most of these drugs have like a really excellent safety, a safety profile, especially sort of the newer drugs in the market, but that just doesn't mean we throw a systemic therapy at every single person. Um, so... You know, objectively, I'll just say, when you look at the package insert for these medications, most of these medications are indicated for moderate to severe plaque psoriasis, not controlled with topical or other therapy. So that's kind of broad. Um, and for some drugs, mm -hmm. it's, it's DMARDs like methotrexate or acid retin. Um, and for some medications, that includes, you know, phototherapy as the other therapy. So if you fail topicals and phototherapy, um, then you may be able to qualify for this medication. And obviously, there you know you obviously don't want to have a contraindication to the drug because then you can't give it to them, um, or shouldn't. Yep. So I think yep. the first thing is like okay, so if we break down that sentence, indicated for moderate to severe psoriasis, and not controlled with topical or other therapy, how do you define moderate to severe psoriasis? So that's that's, that's a great the question. first thing, you know. Yep. You know everybody needs to have a solid understanding of how they're going to determine um, what they believe to be moderate to severe and what the insurance company determines to be moderate and severe. So there's two scales. There's more than two scales, but the two scales that are important are the BSA and the PASI. So the BSA is the body surface area, BSA, and the PASI, P-A-S-I, is the psoriasis area and severity index. You might see something similar to that in, in other diseases, like the EASY is the eczema area and sever, sever, severity index. They you know, borrowed all of these things from psoriasis. 
Mm-hmm. So you are going to want to assess the patient on one of these scales and you're going to want to document it because the documentation is what you need to get these medications covered. So like first is the body surface area. It's a simple scale, zero to 100, okay? Americans like zero to 100 as, as scales. <laughs> so this one, <laughs> the, this one was made for Americans, I guess. 1% is defined as the size of a palm of the patient's hand. So that's how you determine what 1% for, the, for that person's body is because hands are generally proportional to the patient's body and you know it has to be the patient's hand to determine 1%. It's determined that 1% of your palm equals 100% of your body. 100 times. And I just want to clarify too, I, I believe that the 1% is the palm, including the fingers, as far as their 1% BSA. Yes, it is the whole palmer surface. That's absolutely true. Yeah, it's because I know some people think just the palm itself. So I just want to clarify that. No, I think that's a, I think that's a great delineation to make. So yep. less than three is considered mild. Three to 10 is considered moderate and greater than 10 is considered severe. So less than three is great. mild. Three to 10 is moderate and 10% is severe. Severe. Yeah. Yep. Love it. So, you know, based on this, a lot more of your patients than you think would meet criteria for a biologic just based on, you know, the BSA. But like I said, there are other subjective things we'll talk about in the medical decision-making process a little bit later. So mm-hmm. like looking at a PASI score, that's a little bit different because first of all, that's on a range from zero to 72. This is a point scale, not a percentage scale. And the maximum amount of points possible is 72. And so even like a really, really, really severe psoriasis patient rarely breaks. Like I think, 20, I think 28 on this scale or somewhere around there delineates as like, you know, severe psoriasis. And that's because the PASI score is a complicated calculation. It takes into more than account than just the body surface area. It does take the body surface area into account, but then it weighs those areas based on the actual quality of the skin lesions. So how thick is the scale? How thick is the plaque underneath the scale itself? What is the degree of erythema? And then there's this complicated calculation and they come up with a score. But the best thing about it is for on a PASI scale to be considered severe, 10 is the number. Mm -hmm. So 10 is the magic number all around. 10 for both. That is helpful. Yeah. And And I'll also throw in there too that I know the POSI is kind of a complicated calculation, but there's a great app out there called the Grappa app. So it's spelled G-R-A-P-P-A. Mm-hmm. And I know that we use that a lot in clinic when we had some studies uh, on a variety of different uh, psoriatic medications that we were using. So I just want to throw that out for the residents too. If you ever have to calculate it, that would be one to use. But oftentimes, you know, it's it takes a while to do that. And really the BSA is what you, what you especially want to document for these patients. I have but. had some insurance companies ask for the PASI. And so I would just, Oh, also, interesting. I know. And it's been very recent actually. So I would just say that if you document the, the BSA and you say it's over 10, then I think you probably feel confident that their PASI is 10 and, and, and go ahead and just, you know, document it as you can best. But that app is great. I forgot about that. You're absolutely right. I'm yep. still using an abacus to calculate my, <laughs> whatever works which is is why my clinical trial enrollment is so low i'm just still working on the first patient calculation (laughs) (laughs) oh that's funny these youngsters in our apps but i know all right so so we're looking at the you have the patient in front of you you're looking at the severity you got the bsa or the PASI, whatever way you want to calculate that severity but what else are you looking for to factor in whether you want to give them a biologic or not well so the other thing i will say there are exceptions to this PASI rule so special sites Mm-hmm. So if you don't have to meet like, so if you have palmar plantar disease, that's 4% of your body surface area, right? But it is severely disabling for the patient. 
Um, and oh, so yeah. hands and feet, genitals, mucosa, nails, and scalp sort of get to bypass that 10% rule. And you'll see in a lot of these prior authorization forms, they will ask for special sites because they do get special consideration and they are able to sort of, you can't meet the 10% rule um, then as long as you have one of these other qualifying sites, then it's deemed to be detrimental enough to sort of upgrade them to moderate to severe. And so it's really important to look out yep. for those things. And another thing yep. to document is joint pain. Because if a patient has mm -hmm. psoriatic arthritis, sometimes it's easier to get a drug covered in a patient with less than 10% body surface area. I mean, I would say that, you know, and I think a lot of people would share in this observation is that patients with psoriatic arthritis don't have as severe skin disease as, you know, are, you know, sort of erythrodermic, you know, psoriasis. You rarely see those things. They almost like they have to balance each other. They have to choose between whether they're going to go to the skin or the joints and they have to sort of distribute themselves. You know, these, these T cells have to distribute themselves sort of differently. And so a lot of the, mm -hmm. a lot of our psoriatic arthritis patients maybe don't have as severe psoriasis as we would, as we would think to qualify for, you know, from insurance purposes as having maybe a 10% body surface area. But if they have the arthritis, they may qualify for the drug just based on having the arthritis. So joint pain is always something you've got to ask about and investigate about, because that could really upgrade in your mind, the severity and your comfort level with putting a patient on a systemic medication. Yep. No, exactly. That is the one crucial question. Always, always ask about the joint pain or the morning stiffness. And then, you know, the special sites too, it's really important that we do a good thorough exam that we make sure we find those. Cause a lot of times patients won't bring up the general involvement either, mm -mm. but a lot of patients have it too. So if you really want to try to get that biologic for your patient, that's a, another good question to ask is the general involvement. So. And honestly, if you have genital involvement to me, if that's all your involvement is, that is severe. That counts as yeah. severe and it should, it is complete. It is so disabling you know, for patients and, and they won't even bring it up because you're right. Sometimes there's an embarrassment about it, you know? Yep. Or they don't know. They don't know it's related to their psoriasis. Yep. Also very common too. So just want to recap. So objectively, a patient should meet the criteria for either 10% BSA or a POSI score of 10, or they have those special sites like we talked about. And then we want to consider the appropriate FDA approved age range for any particular drug too. No, absolutely. So that's sort of the final objective. So like you, like you sort of recap, the objective is you know, did they meet the criteria based on body surface area and special site? Uh, um, the, the second objective criteria, which we touched on a little bit earlier, is is like, did they try and fail? Because remember, moderate to severe survivalizes not controlled with topical or other therapy, um, and sometimes that's DMARDs or sometimes that's phototherapy. So did they try and fail what they needed to try and fail? And I apologize, it's 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 very thunderous outside, so that's oh, not my stomach. <laughs> I ate lunch. <laughs> and uh, the third is the patient's age age range, because there are different biologics that are indicated down to four or six years old. So uh, etanercept is indicated down to four years old for patients with moderate to severe psoriasis by itself. Mm -hmm. um, Ixekinumab is indicated down to six years old. Um, uh, Ustekinumab is down to adolescents 12 and above, and then all the rest are adults 18 and above. So also just making sure that you're going to write a medication that's in the age range for the patient because that could be a, a, a big kickback but like we um we're actually really lucky to have some options out there for these pediatric patients that have gone through rigorous fda approval oh it's so true and i've had some kids that are really really severely affected and just having those options for them can make a big big difference 
Um, okay, so we've talked about more of the objective. What are some of those other instincts or experiences that patients might bring up that will make you also want to reach for systemic therapy? Can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, so so I call these like my subjective criteria. So the subjective criteria is really what gives you the gestalt. Because just because somebody, we all have patients that walk in with the most severe disease and you're like, I can help you in like four to six weeks. And there's just these barriers that you you couldn't imagine because they don't affect your life, but they really affect millions of millions of our patients. And so the first is patient buy-in. Like, what are the patient's feelings and biases towards systemic therapy? There may be more than you could possibly realize. So you'd be really surprised how often like providers don't actually ask the patient if they want the medication or if they will actually use the medication if it's if it's if, if they get it. Patients are afraid to say no or object or ask questions when we're talking of myeloma. I know we always, you know, think of our patients and be like, well, I saw on Dr. Oz, blah, blah. But for just as many patients that do that, there are just as many patients that should sort of sit quietly. They don't register everything that we're saying. Um, they know we have the best intentions, but they do have these biases. And we have to address them before we eat, before we put all the legwork into getting these medications for the patient. Because you know, you do the whole prior auth and the patient declines the delivery and the pharmacy calls and you've done all this work. You haven't helped the patient because you basically thought they were going to get this medication and you didn't really make another plan for the, an alternate plan for their therapy. So just really talking to them about, you know, buying in. And then if they do have biases, like addressing those biases, sometimes you're not going to change their bias. They've decided that it's made with blood products and they don't want whatever. It is. Sometimes you're not going to change the mm -hmm. bias, but a lot of the times yep. you can, but you have to, if you don't, if you don't have that, if you don't ask that question, which takes three seconds, you're never going to find out. So, yep. you know, like, you know, I sort of have my like tools that I use. I don't want to say convince patients, but to sort of get the patients to evaluate what their own value system is that they may not realize is their value system. So I ask things like, <clears throat> you know, what things are you prevented from doing or ashamed of doing because of your psoriasis? And is it important for you to try and do those things? And a lot of the times mm -hmm. that just opens up the conversation, you know, you know, just a little simple acknowledgement of like understanding how their skin makes them feel and how most people write off skin disease as not being serious and how they don't deserve to have a limited life. Like usually I will get the patients that have just been sort of bounced around topical therapy, this and that and the other, whatever newest, you know, foam is on the market, but really they qualify from objective and subjective criteria for systemic, no one, uh, for systemic therapy, no one's ever offered it to them. Mm -hmm. And so to just really tell them like, you don't deserve to live like this. Like you have options is sometimes like just another eye-opening, very quick thing to say that people really relate to because it's sad, but some people think that they like deserve it or this is their plight and there's nothing else, you know? Yeah, they've lived it a very long time. A very long time. They haven't time. realized these options are there. And so. then the last thing like regarding side effects, if, if side effect is sort of like a barrier for patients, you know, I'm honest with them always about the risks and the likelihood and the unlikelihood of them occurring, but you have to be, you know, balanced with your patients. But I always ask the patient this question. Why are you so worried about a disease that could happen when you're dealing with the disease that's already happened? Oh, I love that. <laughs> you know, let's try to focus first on like today's reality rather than some future possibility. 
And sometimes patients are, you know, when you combine all three of those things, like what the things that they could do, I mean, I know it sounds silly, but you know, like the psoriasis commercial where they're like running in the fields with butter. Like I've never had a patient tell me that they like would run in a field with butterflies if their psoriasis was clear, but you, you get the point. Like what are the things That's that hilarious. they would, you know, what are the things that they would do, you know? And how do they train that butterfly for the commercial? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> no, <laughs> you're killing me. <laughs> but anyway, those are those are some things to sort of like you know about face the conversation to realize. Because and if they're not going to buy in, then they're not going to buy in. There's other options for them. You know, there's some oral medications. There's topicals. There, there's whatever. At least you feel like, and you know, you've you've made them think. It doesn't mean that they may not sign up. You know, today, but you know, maybe in four to six months they'll think about it. As long as you're just you know you're always treating them in line with what their value system is, but you can also question their value system for themselves. But as long as you're, tr they will always trust you. Yeah. You know? Yep. Yeah. And like you said, plant the seed, even if you feel like they're not going to want to start it that day. All right. So this is where we'll hit pause in the interview. And in the next episode, Dr. K and I will break down the process for how to choose the biologic that is the best option for your patient. Hope you tune in then. All right. Thanks for joining today. I want to thank Dr. Sean for his help with the content and Dr. K for not only adding clinical pearls, but supporting this podcast from the get-go. I also want to thank Garrett and Dan for their work with editing and post-production, along with our excellent team of students and residents with Dave, Dan, and Sandra, who put together an awesome study guide for each episode that's available at www.grenzonederm.com. And that's with two Zs, grenzonederm.com. If you have any feedback on how we can improve our content, you can contact us through our website or via email at grenzonederm at gmail.com. Also, don't forget to follow us on social media for more helpful mnemonics and quiz questions. Thanks again for listening today. I'm Logan Kolb, and we'll see you next time here in the Gren Zone. This episode is copyright 2021 Pro Podcasting LLC, all rights reserved. The Grenzone Podcast is a service provided by Pro Podcasting LLC and is not affiliated with any other service providers.